again to introduce Wild Root Podcast number three. Uh, there's a little bit of a, a new development with this uh, audio feature I began a couple of months ago. Uh, it is now available on Apple Music or iTunes, whichever is the, mo- the more current terminology for that, uh, that podcast app, and also on Amazon Music. So if you use uh, either of those uh, apps or services, you can subscribe and you'll get a notification on uh, whenever a new episode's released. Uh, and at this point, looking at about one uh, at the beginning of every month. So uh, this installment is uh, to accompany our January issue, issue number six. And it's uh, actually a little bit different than the previous two that I've done so far, which have been uh, interviews. Uh, this one's more of a, a roundtable discussion format. And it was an idea I've had for a little bit I wanted to, to try out. And uh, this was the first opportunity I, I had to do that. So that's what you're, you're, you're about to hear in a couple of minutes. Just to, uh, to set it up a little bit, uh, uh, in this episode I'm talking to uh, two other people. Uh, one of them, his name is Chris Boat, And uh, I've known Chris for, uh, for quite a bit. We're colleagues at the same college uh, as far as my teaching job. And I knew he would have a lot to offer in terms of uh, some of the poetry and other writing we've published uh, in this website. So over the years, we've talked a lot about literature and uh, a lot of other things. So uh, I knew he would be um, a good choice to include in this discussion. And the other participant uh, I have not known very long. Her name is Adrienne Rosells, and she's been helping uh, as a reader uh, since uh, maybe around uh, September, October, and uh, has actually been a, a big help in how the uh, review process goes, uh, providing a good first or second step in the review process uh, for some of the fiction and some of the poetry. Uh, Chris and Adrian will be joining me in this discussion. And the way we uh, set it up was basically we picked a couple of favorites, one or two uh, favorite pieces that uh, that we published so far. The selection process is, uh, in this case, uh, 100% subjective. I kind of wanted to call it like a year-end review or something like that, um, but it's not uh, in any way uh, a best of, or we're not picking what we consider the best uh, pieces that have been published. It just to uh, pick out a couple that uh, we liked, either from a, a personal reason, personal connection, something that we just found interesting or uh, had something that we wanted to talk to each other about. So uh, there's a handful of pieces that we cover. And if you were a contributor this year, I guess you're in the running. Um, but just to, um, to name the pieces that we'll be talking about, and uh, if you go to our website, wildroofjournal.com slash podcast, uh, you'll see links to all these pieces. So um, it's kind of an interactive listening experience. You can go and check out these pieces, a couple of poems uh, and a couple of visual pieces. So if you um, 
check those out first before listening or, or during or after or whatever. Um, it kind of gives you a little bit of a, of a reference point for what we're, uh, what we're discussing. So, uh, as the list goes, in uh, no particular order as far as the, when they come up in the discussion, uh, but the, the pieces that we covered are uh, Samantha Kramer's Darkwood, that's from issue 5, Rosemary Bohm's poem, A Deluge by Any Other Name, also issue 5, Lelage Curie, a visual and a poem piece called Shore, that's from issue 4, Todd Bartell, Garden Study, Issue 5. Samantha Malay, uh, Poems Called Geography of Doubt and Property. Back to Issue 1 for that one. And Catherine LeCompte's Mad Girl's Love Song, and that was from Issue 5 also. I just wanted to thank those particular contributors uh, for sharing their work with us. And obviously we, we enjoyed it and we uh, enjoyed discussing it a little bit here. Obviously, there's many other great pieces uh, that we've published over the past five issues. So uh, perhaps we'll, uh, we'll have more of these roundtable discussions and we'll be able to pick out uh, some more of those excellent pieces uh, and uh, talk about, about those in a little more depth as well. Really, our approach here was just to uh, kind of use these as, as a little bit of a, a starting point to, uh, to throw it back and forth See what, see what each other think about the pieces, what did we like about them, what, what drew us in uh, as readers, and just kind of what we enjoyed about it. So I didn't want to make it uh, anything as, as far as formal or academic sounding, um, just, you know, a few people who enjoy this, this type of thing, whether it's uh, the, the poetry side or visual art, just wanted to um, get a, li a little bit more into these pieces and uh, consider them in a little... A little bit of a different light. At this point, it seems like a good time to jump right into the discussion. So uh, I hope you enjoy it as much as the three of us did. Thanks for listening, everybody. My name is Aaron Lolito. I'm the main editor at Wild Roof Journal. Um, so this would be the third installment of these uh, audio interviews, discussions, and if, you, uh, if you're new to us, there's uh, well, there'll be two other ones. Uh, they're more interview style, uh, so you can go listen back to those. My name is Chris Vogt. I teach at Erie Community College. I teach English writing and some literature. It's been at least 10 years since I've published anything, but I'm still struggling and interested and trying to stick with it as much as possible. And thank goodness there's places like this uh, to talk about it and get back into literature. Thanks. And Adrian? Uh, hi, I'm Adrian Roselles. Uh, I graduated this past spring from Oberlin College with a degree in creative writing. And I am a reader for Wild Roof. So I do some initial readings and pass things along to the main editors. And I. I've been published like in on-campus lit mags, things like that, but I'm kind of just striking out into the greater literary world. And I think that places like Wild Roof and opportunities to read so widely from different, different authors and creators have been really exciting for me and make me hopeful about putting stuff out there. Uh, Adrian, I know what you selected. 
Uh, Chris, I called you the wild card because I don't know what you selected. Yeah, um, it, it took me a while, but I was able to eventually uh, narrow it down to a uh, top spot with two runners up. Okay, nice. So, it, and, you know, we'll kind of see what we cover and, you know, see what we like. So, yeah, we'll get started. Who wants to throw one out there and uh, we'll see how it goes. Adrian, sounds like you had uh, some advance notice if you want to set the tone. I'll throw uh, you under the bus there. <laughs> okay, well, I chose two. Um, maybe we can start with a poem. Um, so I chose Darkwood by Samantha Kramer, which is in Gallery 1 of Issue 5. Um, and... Do you do you want it read aloud, or do you just want to talk about it? Um, I'll actually post uh, the whatever we talk about. Okay. Um, I'll post it to the website, so um, so people will be able to see it too. And there's some visual pieces that'll be uh, on awesome. the website as well. So um, yeah, that's that's a great one. That was one I was uh, eyeing up too, and one that struck me a little bit as I was going through these issues again. So yeah, what did you like about Darkwood? Uh I think this one just caught me pretty quickly, the opening line even. Um, I like how the stanza breaks so sharply, um, and it just made me want to read more and find out what was coming up. I think that this piece does a really interesting job of sort of blending um, human life just into nature. Uh, like, for example, the line, my thorn brush hair, I thought was really cool and sort of just in showing these sort of different wild elements within the narr narrator's life and like whoever they're talking to and I think but my favorite thing about this piece um was just kind of how there are words that are combined that aren't real words and you usually wouldn't see put together like that like edge glow or like gentle bone hands I just thought these sort of invented adjectives were really really cool and they reminded me of E.E. E. Cummings a little bit and how he plays with that sometimes and I just thought it had a really beautiful sound. Yeah the, the word usages are unusual like you mentioned there's words that are put together without a space and the, one of the things that struck me about it too is it it's, has this like almost a fairy tale kind of a tone mm -hmm. like it's like a dark wood um, like a black forest idea and it had, has this kind of like a, like a little bit more of like a fantastical element to it mm -hmm. so I, th I thought that was kind of interesting too yeah i would agree with that and i think like it has this fantastical feeling but also a lot of callbacks to like greek mythology um and so i think that was sort of an interesting way to I mean, like it's playing with something that's so old, but then kind of retelling it in like a more modern fairy tale feeling way and like almost speaking to the reader with the italicized bits. Like they have a totally different tone. I felt like they were talking to me more and I wasn't expecting something that was like calling back to mythology to like interact with me as a reader so much. Right. Yeah. Those, those lines that are isolated in italics, mm -hmm. yeah, those, yeah, that is right. It does shift the tone a little bit. It's a, a little more, I guess, it's conversational in a way. Yeah. There's a question. Yeah, exactly. I'm a sucker for poems that seem like they're able to engage you like that without being overly formal or kind of uh, deliberately self-aware, crafty is an unfair word for it. 
And I'm also a sucker for, for what I call punchline endings. I'll bring this up when I talk about my piece, but I thought the ending here, uh, feed me pomegranate with uncallous fingers of unmade and famished love, let me eat. Uh, it feels like a conclusion. It gives me that, that kind of a little bit of surprise, um, but also maybe a little wit, possibly humor even. I've only been through this poem once, but I felt like it wasn't as uh, kind of darkly self-serious that some poems like this can often succumb to. That's good too. Yeah, I mean, yeah, not to play on the title too much, but yeah, there is a darkness there. Uh, I mean, yeah, you read it through the, even some there's some dark imagery, um, but yeah, there is also there is a I guess maybe that is the fairy tale element. There's a lightness to it, and even a little bit of humor. I guess I was curious because when I was reading this, I couldn't quite decide like what tone I thought it was. Like, there's definitely some darkness to it, but then part of me almost felt like it was like a hopeful, there could be a hopeful reading or like a romantic reading. And I couldn't quite decide what I thought was going on. So I'm curious how you guys felt about that. I agree that the, the italics uh, kind of start, uh, talking to the reader directly gives, gives me that sense of maybe if not quite playfulness, but then at least accessibility. And of course, I always like to read poems as potentially romantic so, you know, uh, tell me what is sweetness or be gentle with me, uh, scans for me as possibly uh, with some romantic undertones, even if there's only one person involved. Yeah, yeah that, that's good. Yeah, I think, well, even just I was looking at the, at the question there too, if I tore into your flesh, would you bleed light? Mm. So that's, I mean, you get the, the light and the dark kind of playing in each other there. Also, yeah, so I think that's definitely built into the poem. Um, and like you said, Chris, it's not doesn't feel overwrought, I guess, in the in the crafty sense. It, it kind of feels like a very naturally, has a very natural kind of flow to it, I think, even though it shifts in tone a little bit between the, the stanzas and the italic, uh, lines in italics. Do either of you know, uh, I, I'm gonna mispronounce the name, Evan Boland or Evan Boland? No. So she's interesting. She's probably in her 80s now, but she has a few poems that show up in anthologies for school frequently. Uh, and the most famous one is Anorexic, which is a play on anorexia, but it also has this kind of biblical undertone of kind of cleansing yourself or mm. uh, starving yourself to uh, reach some kind of purity. And then she kind of ends with a romantic subplot where it's almost cannibalistic in its imagery. And I wondered if you've got a little cannibalism vibe from this. It is there too. Yeah, I did, it did cross my mind too. Yeah, that is, I, I'm not familiar with the, the poet you mentioned, but I'll have to I'll look her up. She's, she's interesting because I actually got to see her live and totally different reading when she reads out loud. You get a kind of a sense of mischief that you might not get if you were just reading it off the page. Nice. Yeah, so, all right, we'll, uh, we'll move on to the next one and we'll, we'll circle back to uh, your other pick um, in a little bit. Okay. Uh, so I guess, Chris, uh, we'll await your, uh, your first selection. So you know, the first thing I'd say is going through uh, this many poems at this level of quality, I was embarrassed and ashamed at how little of this I've been doing. So in terms of my own background, uh, went to college with a writing or English major, had a double major in psychology, and was putting stuff out there, right? So I, I actually 
I have a show and tell here. This is the 2006 Poets Market. So this is what I was using to try to find publications like this to publish my own stuff. And I was wondering, I'll come back to this as a question for the two of you. Do you notice that there's kind of an American, and I, I don't mean this to sound pejorative, but an MFA style, like mm -hmm. a certain style that is consistent among MFA students? Because the pattern that I noticed was all three that I really liked. Uh, here are the two runners up. It was uh, uh, Not Their Prerogative Solely by Jerome Berglund, uh, which I thought was very nice. Starts with kind of a Plato's cave analogy, but then also gets kind of playful. Stella Hayes' The Long Drive might be my favorite, but I didn't know if I had enough to talk about it, except that it's just really luscious. And the, that was the one that transported me to the scene the most. Uh, and then the one that I actually chose I think uh, is the most interesting and maybe my favorite com competitive is uh, Rosemary Boehm's uh, A Deluge by Any Other Name. That's that's the one I focused on and I realized all three of them were either uh, not born in America or they were dual citizenship. They came from you know, two different countries. So that made me start to wonder if I'm recognizing an MFA style, which again, I'd love to hear your guys' opinion on. So this is my favorite because it has what I describe as that punchline ending. It doesn't have to be a gimmicky ending, like a, kind of a gotcha twist or anything, but this has a little element of that. Um, so it starts off with some imagery that has to do with South American jungles and ayahuasca trips and spirit animals. So it has kind of that um, spirit journey feel, a mystic vision feel to it, which I love Yates, so anything that kind of gets into that part dream, part reality and mythology. I'm always crazy about that. And then it ends and you kind of zoom out and you realize we're probably talking about some insects uh, and plants that are you know, being consumed by insecticides. So I like that little twist. It's not quite a gotcha moment, but there's different levels, right? You've got some Mayan mythology happening. You've got some really nice uh, language um, and you've also got the ayahuasca you know, spirit journey elements. And then it kind of ends with what I would think of as kind of a traditional environmental message. You know, it's sort of uh, a traditional feeling or sentiment of uh, think, think of the Amazon and its complexity and save the rainforests. But the way it gets there is so luscious and has the different layers of mythology um, that I appreciated that very much. And one question, let me actually ask you both of you this. Uh, with the MFA voice uh, in mind, uh, do you sense that there's a point with poetry, like current poetry, meaning the last 20 years, where there is almost like in jazz a point of esoterica, where you feel like the poet's only writing to show off how good they are to other poets? Does that sound familiar? Do you ask nervously? Um, Adrian, you're probably closer to the... To the um fine art or MFA or BFA experience uh, than we are. Um, so I got, do you have a, an initial reaction to that? I mean, I think, I think it's true that there's a, I mean, something that I haven't actually gone through an MFA yet, but I, in my creative writing, like bachelor's degree, <laughs> did a lot of reading of just like recent anthologies, things that are coming out from more recent poets or, and I think there is like a certain style that I've noticed or like certain themes that people tend to pick up intertextually, stuff like that. And I think that sometimes 
writing can become really inaccessible if you're trying just to write for the sake of impressing other authors. And that is something that I like am curious about as more people go through these higher level programs to kind of break into the field. You have to do that in order to like get published and get credited and all this stuff. And I, I do worry sometimes that it could like make what's being talked about smaller because it's harder to like hear different voices or perspectives that maybe aren't coming out of academia um and so I definitely think that is true and I'd also I think I find that authors who are writing between cultures avoid that problem because there's new like almost non-western perspectives coming in or sometimes people who are writing across languages are really really interesting one of the most recent Yale young poets that was like got a whole anthology published it was like going back and forth between English and Spanish um and experiences in America and Latin America and I think those pieces do tend to be really interesting because they're breaking a certain pattern yeah yeah maybe there's like a certain expectation I guess I mean the one thing that that came to mind first was not necessarily like a stylistic uh, but somebody um, kind of phrased it, or might, it might be more common than I realize, but phrased it as like a page poem. So mm-hmm. something that like fits nicely on a page, as opposed, I guess it's, you know, a certain shorter in length and not, you know, something that's going to take up too much room when you have to uh, kind of work into a publication that is going to be limited. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that kind of awareness, it's uh, it's a kind of awareness beyond just the, the subject matter but yeah that's that, that struck me when when that person said that just because it was kind of so obvious but not something I really had thought of before like oh I didn't really I usually write if I write something it's usually shorter but I wasn't thinking of it in terms of like oh this has got to fit on like one single mm-hmm. you know eight and a half by five and a half page is that what you're thinking Chris what did, did that were those answers uh <laughs> Oh, that's great. I'm, hey, I'm, what you're thinking. It, it must be said that I'm I'm talking about this with uh, some bitterness 15 years after kind of <laughs> you know putting a year or two in really trying to get published. And I think to this point, the most money I've ever made with a poem that was published was I made $25 publishing a poem called Clown Coitus in Christchurch, New Zealand. That was kind of like the last uh, kind of success, quote unquote. And so uh, after that, I got more into fiction and I've got, you know, half of a really pulpy novel sitting rotting in a corner that I haven't touched for three months, even though we're locked at home. And so I'm totally removed from the academic side of what's recent, or, you know, the kind of the current trends uh, in either what's likely to get published, what's coming out of the universities. And I, again, I have a, it could be only jealousy and bitterness talking, but the MFA voice sounds uh, suspiciously uniform until you start breaking out of uh, just the Western culture or you're from another country or you're from a different background. I think the other one that I really liked was from an engineer in Texas somewhere, you know, who had no formal training in creative writing and uh, attempting to hypothesize that the university system is kind of crafting one rivulet, uh, but then, you know, you're interested in what else is out there. Yeah, I that that could very well be. I think the my approach when I read poetry is probably a little less from that place. 
of like the creative writing program. And I do tend to like things that are a little bit unorthodox. Mm -hmm. uh, not necessarily like esoteric, like you mentioned, or like avant-garde that could be interesting or maybe it could go a little bit too far, obviously. But something that kind of just strikes you as, oh, this is almost like you just said, like, oh, this was written by a, a real person as opposed to, um, you know, I had to crank up five poems in a week or however, however <laughs> those programs work. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that was kind of a, that's a good insight because yeah, hopefully there are a bunch of those poems in that, that we do publish that are kind of seem a little bit, um, I was going to say a little bit off, but that sounds a little negative, but like a, you know, just a little bit, a little bit different. Yeah, I mean, um, I think this, um, A Deluge by Any Other Name is interesting because it's like, it's, as you said, like at the end, it kind of comes to this punchline. It has like a message almost, but it's not so, it's not like so on the nose about it. You kind of have to get there on your own and be like open to hearing that. And I think um, a lot of poetry like stems from, you know, it stems from like oral tradition and storytelling. You're trying to learn something or teach something way back when but like do it in a way that's engaging for your audience, um, no matter where they're coming from. And I think that the, sometimes it might not even so much be like the university aspect as like this feeling like I have to, this has to be publishable, it has to appeal, it has to do this, this and this in order to get on the page. And I think maybe people who are like speaking to an experience or a story that they just really feel has to be told, don't run into that problem as much. That makes a lot of sense. And I think the next piece you were going to talk about is visual art. And so, um, Aaron, you used the term avant-garde. So I guess we, so we have a three-point uh, trident. Anytime I'm thinking about music, I have a similar line of thought where particularly with jazz, the more complex it gets, the harder it is to tell if it's really good, like borderline genius level, or if it's just BS, people kind of being esoteric for esoteric sake. Um, and it's kind of that struggling, right? Accessibility, but also maximum quality and sophistication. And uh, the sweet spot on the graph is if you can pull uh, people in who might think they hate poetry or think they hate jazz, but you, you know, I think Vince Giraldi for me is the sweet spot in terms of jazz because most people like the pants theme and those uh, kind of really gentle, accessible pieces. But if you listen to them, they're pretty sophisticated jazz. And so as a you know struggling jazz pianist and as a struggling writer, I'm always Kind of wondering where to try to uh, how high to aim so that i'm not just trying to impress other people uh but also trying to challenge myself and get outside of my own comfort zone right that's the uh that's the balancing act yeah um hopefully the the piece i have in mind and i sent it to both of you kind of plays into this a little bit it's from leilage curie and it's titled shore and i picked this one um, for a lot of reasons, actually, uh, but it, it's a great example of something that is visual and also textual. Um, and that was really when I started this idea, the Wild Roof Journal, that was kind of a, one of the, the seeds that got me going is the, to combine these two worlds. So this one does it in a really compact, really economical, visually appealing. Um, I really like this piece. And again, I'll put the put this one on the website so people can 
can uh, see it visually, uh, but it's, it's uh, set up as a postcard. Um, and the image that we get is both sides of the postcard. And uh, the first side is like a collage of like a shoreline. And it's something that strikes me as a, it's a very familiar image. I, I love being by the water. Um, so it's something I, it's just an image that I love and that it just, it strikes me as something I, I like without even thinking too much about it. Uh, but it's it's stylized because it has these kind of odd different collage elements to it to make it kind of appear like waves, but it's a little bit unfamiliar as well. And then the back side of the postcard has a poem. And the more I read the poem, it's very short, but it, there's something about it that I just, I, I almost can't explain. It just, it strikes me as something that I, I feel. Um, even though it's so sparse and like a, a little bit unusual, but it, there's a, kind of those hallmark images that I just like kind of have in my have in my head, I guess. Um, so the the text, oh, and the uh, the artist mentioned that she did design the stamp as well. Oh, so that was kind of a, that was kind of a cool thing. Yeah. Um, but it, the the poem itself struck me as like a, a change in the seasons, like ending ending summer, which is my favorite season and going into fall, which is my least favorite season. <laughs> so it struck me as, as this, this time um, on the shore when it's not quite summer, but you know, you know, you kind of have to keep moving forward. So that, that hits me in an emotional level, I guess, just in, in that spot. Um, and that the final three lines, I walk here, I walk here, I walk here, just kind of make me feel like that moment um, on the shore. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, what did you think about it? I'll admit I didn't do my homework on that one, <laughs> so I didn't find it. So apologies, I'll have to sit in the dust corner for this one. <laughs> um. I, I, this was actually a piece that I read and looked at when I was first applying to read for Wild Roof. Like I just happened upon this when I was trying to like learn more about the journal and what kind of stuff is published. And I really, really liked this piece and it stuck with me. Um, I am a big fan of like artifact fiction, by which I mean like things that are made to look like other things. So like fiction in the form of a postcard really strikes my fancy. <laughs> um, but I, I think that the poem itself it does have this sort of like it almost melancholy feeling um and i it all in the description descriptions that are used are interesting to me like the sand is crushed gray taffeta i i would never think to describe sand as taffeta and to be honest i don't totally understand what it means but like i have a feeling and i like it <laughs> um and I also enjoyed the, I walk here, I walk here, I walk here. I, it feels like, I don't know, it gives me the sense of like this being a place that the narrator is familiar with. And I don't know if it's like that they're in, they walk here because they like it and this is their home and they just keep going there every day. Or if it's like a monotony and they're tired and they're trying to walk beyond it, but they can't get there. Um, and I think that little repetition at the end fit 
really well with a piece that was kind of more ambiguous. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you mentioned a couple of things on the melancholy. I guess that's that's the word I was maybe searching for, which I definitely it, it comes across even in such a such a limited amount of text. And yeah, describing the sand as gray taffeta, which is like a soft fabric. Yeah, it's gray. And if you're on a beach and it's sunny and it's July, you wouldn't describe this because the sand is gray usually, I guess. Oh, in these parts, I guess. Um, maybe in other places you have different colored sand. But um, yeah, it kind of adds to that, that, that pathos. And then the, the repetition at the end struck me. I didn't even think of another reading, actually. It, just, it struck me as belonging. Mm. Um, but yeah, you, you're right. It, it, it could mean a lot of different things. Um, but I guess that's why, I, in my response, it just felt me like I belong here. Yeah. Um, and even though things are moving on, as far as um, even the literal reading of the seasons, or obviously a more emotional reading, um, you know, this is where you belong, I guess, or where the, the speaker belongs. Yeah, and I mean, that was the first time I read it, that was the reading I came away with. Um, and I think that maybe because of like the the third stanza where it says like the great half of the thing and bleakness shimmers, um, the sky is lustrous as a worm. <laughs> I was like, that's so weird and fun, but I thought that it was kind of trying to project like magic into like a maybe dreary or bleak space um so that does i think imply that the narrators likes it there <laughs> yeah like and again like you know this is part of our discussion we're taking uh um taking liberties a little bit and, and kind of uh, extrapolating what we might be reading into the text so um, i mean i'm also just biased because i like the beach <laughs> yeah, yeah so I'm, I'm on board with that um and, I, and the other thing, I, I just love the compactness of it. Like you mentioned, it's kind of the, the ephemera of a postcard. Um, it's, it's just a cool concept to me. So yeah, I just, I'm kind of on board with the, with that, that element of it where it's, it is a poem, it is a collage, but it's also this practical thing um, that stands apart from those other uh, pieces of art. So yeah, and then, uh, I guess we'll move on. Uh, Adrian, you get another selection. Yeah. Um, my other one was mostly a visual art piece. It's Garden Study by Todd Bartell, which is in Gallery 3 of Issue 5. And it was just a really interesting. I didn't pick one particular image out of it. It's a series of three. Um, and I kind of looked at all of them because I felt like they were building on a story almost and I wanted to know what it was <laughs> so I was just looking really closely and the more I looked like like I just caught my eye and I was like okay yeah I'm gonna say this one because it looks pretty and I'll be excited to keep looking at it but then when I kept looking at it I found new things every time um and that was really exciting because it's kind of a collage piece but it's also like a little puzzle and all of it is done over pages of the Metamorphoses by Ovid, which is something I studied and enjoyed. So that was exciting for me. And I was trying to like look at the line numbers and find it in my book and be like, what myth is this? <laughs> but I think that 
this does kind of a similar thing to what I liked in the other piece I spoke about, which is that it's playing on like old mythologies, but then just bringing in a modern viewpoint of like the na nature, things growing out of it. And it's no longer just this Western mythos because the artist has included different languages and different spaces. You have Hebrew on the first page and the last one um, is titled Walk Walk Tree, which I Googled. And that is like from Arabic mythology. And that was super cool um, and taught me something. <laughs> I learned a lot from these, which was cool. Sure. And yeah, the, there are many more in this series. And I was going back and forth, back and forth with this artist. Um, he had sent maybe 10 or 15 uh, images of, of, of images in the series. And maybe they are um, on his website as well. So we'll link that. Um, but yeah, they're all these layered part painting um, on top of these pages of, yeah, like you mentioned, metamorphoses. Um, and they're all, they all have to do with some kind of mythology. Uh, and you mentioned a couple. So I found it interesting that a lot of the pieces we talked about have some kind of mythic element to them. So maybe, yeah, maybe that's a, a theme I didn't realize was there. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think like something that struck me in talking about all of these pieces is like the idea of sort of like mythologies growing as people do and like the cultures and societies and I think like it's almost I mean a lot of Wild Roof's work that's published plays with nature and humanity and how they go together and I think that mythologies and religions and different things growing out of cultures kind of grow like nature and I don't know if that entirely makes sense outside of my brain but that was something that I liked about all of these pieces right. well yeah and yeah exactly too yeah there, there's a natural element in at least the three that I included um, one is a, as a volcano one is a, a sun underground underground sun and the third one is the lock lock tree so yeah there, there are these elements of uh culture, which is the mythologies and then the elements of nature, which is kind of brought into the, brought into the culture. So, and I've been going with the text underneath it. It's very, like, mm -hmm. I, one of the reasons I liked it was just the layering of it. And they're very kind of messy constructions. Like when you, when you look, look, look at them visually, like you said, there's so much to see, uh, just the surface, you kind of get one image of it, but you can kind of even zoom in the different pieces the text that's kind of covered up with paint in this area yeah. that area you kind of see words and phrases coming through but yeah you can have kind of a lot of fun with those because you can really look at them through different uh through a couple different uh, go-arounds and get something different out of it each time yeah and i think kind of like um in the piece chris spoke about kind of ended with this idea of like science meeting nature and the pesticides and the insects and one thing i liked about this is like the last page, the walk, walk tree has some scientific elements too. Like he's literally playing with the periodic table and then like showing how it grows this mythical tree, which supposedly sprouts people. <laughs> um, and I, I don't know. I think it's really interesting when authors can and artists can make 
like sort of STEM fields and just stories come together so well. I think that's really exciting. <laughs> right. And the other one had uh, at the bottom right corner the, the periodics um, square for gold. Oh, cool. I didn't even see that. Which is the sun. I, or the one with the sun on it, the, the underground sun. Yeah, I think um, the other one that I, I selected that is another visual piece was Catherine LeCompte's Mad Girl's Love Song. This one I picked again because it, it was this intersection of text and visual art. And uh, the author noted that the title Mad Girl's Love Song comes from the, the Sylvia Plath poem by the same name. Um, and again, this was a series. There, there's three on the website that are from this uh, photography series. But this is another one that was uh, just visually striking, first of all, and then plays again with the, the shore element and the water element that I was um, talking a little bit about with, uh, with uh, the piece called Shore uh, a little bit ago. Um, the one thing I liked about it is uh, I like a lot of these very unusual or experimental portraits. Um, just the, the one, the one picture is uh, just a portrait of a, a girl's face with her eyes closed. Um, and it seems to be as you, as you scroll the other images, there's the water imagery. So um, the background isn't quite clear, but it's kind of the seaweed and water. And I just kind of like the, the colors and just the way the, the green, I, even there's like green in the face, like in the, in the mm -hmm. eyes, you can you get kind of the, the um, kind of flows from the green on the one side of the page to the red on the other side of the page. Yeah, it was just something that kind of struck me as this kind of using a, an established poem to kind of play off of in you know, a, different, a different medium. And I did refresh my memory a bit with the um, with the poem itself, the Sylvia Plath poem. The first two lines relate, I feel, to the uh, to the portrait. Um, the first two lines of the poem: I shut my eyes and the world drops dead. I lift my lids; all is born again. Hmm. That one I thought was interesting too. And then the other two pictures that I included: one was the hand um, over the over the water in the background and the feet at the water's edge. So I yeah, kind of felt I, that liminality. I, I kind of liked the, that aspect of those three those three pictures. They're, they're very striking. Like it's it's really interesting how like just the hand with sort of shell fragments on it is I think my the one that catches me the most and it's almost the most straightforward. I don't totally know what about it draws me in, but I'm like, ooh. <laughs> um, but I think maybe just because the the initial portrait, she has seaweed, it looks like, around her neck almost. Um, and the last one with her feet in the water is a little darker and like playing with like reds and shadows. Um, and I guess the middle one feels different because it feels almost hopeful like she's just like looking out at the water and I the first one made me think she was like dead <laughs> I'm just curious what the story of this girl in the portrait is yeah right yeah there there is that kind of curious narrative and like like I said there are more to more to the series so yeah the is it the, the crimson dulse I think that's the um 
isn't that like a red type of seaweed? I could be wrong about that. Mm -hmm. uh, in the in the picture with the feet, um, but yeah, the the head for some it's such a simple image, but yeah, for me that that one is it's really engaging too, because there's like yeah, there's shell fragments and like wet wet sand that's kind of held up by this by this hand over like over this blurry blue background, and for some reason yeah. It, I guess, you know, you kind of just ask questions about it as far as maybe piecing together that narrative. Did anybody else have uh, another piece? I know I had one more that I just wanted to throw out there. No one specific piece, but this might be better as a closer, uh, but just the last poem that kind of surprised you or the way I like to think of it is, I didn't realize how far out of this until you sent me this and I started going through poetry and I'm like, oh, there's an entire part of my brain waking up. And I realized the last time a, a poem snuck up and kind of like hit me in the back of the head, like, wow. Uh, so if, if all three of us could share one of those, the last time a poem just really surprised you or snuck up and hit you in the back of the head with baseball bat. <laughs> I'll have to think about that. Yeah, file that one away for a minute. Roger that. Um, but yeah, that would be do you have one, Chris, that you'll you'll be sharing? The the reason I thought of it is I was ashamed when I was going through these poems in this publication that it's been over a year because it was when W.S. Merwin died mm -hmm. and NPR was doing a remembrance. And I, I never had a really strong opinion of W.S. Merwin. Like I knew he was passable and enjoyable and you know took a lot of classes where he'd be one or two. You'd only get one or two poems of his and uh, never really struck me. But he was dead, and I was at a point in my life where the poem, I think it's called A Single Autumn, was just way too creepily on point. You know, it's about somebody whose parents are both dead now, and he's going through the house, and there's all the ghosts and the memories. And the final line, I can't remember the lead up, but the final line is something. He's kind of looking at the emptiness of the house after it's been cleaned out, and all the memories and ghosts are gone. And then he says, and I could do anything. And it was one of those punchline, like a gut, gut punch uh ending that is kind of mysterious it's kind of you kind of sense a little creepy guilt associated with the new freedom and but also all the law the rest of the poem is just a very thoughtful meditation on loss and passing and and the life cycle and yeah i just remember i was i was driving my car somewhere in inner city buffalo and i just had to like pull over like i need, I need a breath and so yeah the poem just snuck up on me out of nowhere and uh i had to like teach him the next day i just Took everything else off the lesson plan. I was like, all right, today's W.S. Merman Day. Nice. Yeah, I, okay. I, um, I'll have to look that one up as well. I, I I feel like you mentioned him before, and I did like what I what I read, but I didn't get too far into it. Um, so yeah, to, to answer that question, the last piece that I was toying with as I was making some selections, I think um, actually does fit the bill because it was published in our first issue, which was back in March. And it's it. I keep going back to it, and uh, it's just something that I even read it again today several times, and I just kind of have the had the same reaction as I um as I normally do when I look at it. Um, so it was from issue one. The poet was Samantha Malay or Malay, M A L A Y, and there's two poems in particular. One was called Geography of Doubt, and one was called Property. Again, it's a little bit tough to describe like what you like about him in, in that subjective way, but these two poems, especially, they're just very like feet on the ground kind of poems. Like they're they play with the 
at least partially autobiographical um, childhood memories and some of the imagery. And again, I, I got a little bit behind the scenes because I, uh, I contacted the writer and, and asked a few questions and we went back and forth a couple of times. So I guess not to bring too much of the of the behind the scenes in, but yeah, there, there were some autobiographical elements of, of her childhood that she brought into it. Yeah, just very like, I guess, like hands in the dirt. I just, it just makes me feel like, you know, that, that sense of place um, that she's speaking about, it's so, it's so tangible uh, in these couple of poems. Yeah, I guess there's, there's an underdog element to it and that uh, you, you just kind of feel like you're, you're almost rooting for the speaker and, and, and the, the characters, I guess you could call them in the poem. And there's great rhythm. It's, again, very easily readable. It just comes out very naturally as far as the, the language and just has this great rhythm. The one line, oh, there, the line uh, near the end of Geography of Doubt. There were lean years even when we cut enough firewood and brought in the hay before the rain. I just, I love that, that idea, like even if we do everything right. It's still a struggle. It's still tough. Um, and for a long time, we believed our gamble would bind us together. So again, it kind of has that element of there's more to the story. Like a long time, we believed that, and then presumably we stopped believing that at some point. Um, so there's just it just kind of you get this surface level of the story, and there's just you just feel like there's more and more uh, beyond it. Um, so that was just an intriguing one, and. And uh, like I said, the one that struck me from the beginning and, and property kind of used that same setting, another poem uh, used that same setting uh, for another of her pieces. I think these poems have like, like you were saying, they leave questions and like you have curiosity, which is a good thing to leave a reader with, I think. But it's also so grounded in detail. Um, like, I don't feel like the questions are overwhelming because I have such a strong sense of place that I don't mind not knowing everything. And that's really, really cool. <laughs> right. And actually, um, the writer had another version of the, it might have been property, is one of these two poems um, that was cut down. It was, it was a lot more sparse. And I think what you just said reminded me of that because, like, you get so much, even though it's, again, it's a short poem, you get this tangible detail. And uh, the sparse version, I think, lost a little bit, you know, if you maybe had that imagery in your head already, you know, you can kind of get it, but you kind of lost a little bit just entering in this world. Um, I like, I like the, the fuller version. So do you remember, do you have a, a, an answer to Chris's question? Do you remember a, a poem that made you step yeah. back for a bit? Um, yeah, I, there was a poem, I just, I did some googling to remember the title <laughs> there is a poem that i read it's kind of early in quarantine so i actually graduated this past spring and so i got kicked off campus because coronavirus and no graduation and life just slips out from under me no plan no job market and i was just so freaked out and everyone was freaked out and i think this is true of like at no matter what stage you're at in your life, it was a confusing time and it still is. Um, and I just like happened to stumble across this poem on Instagram <laughs> that someone had published in their story. And I just 
click through. It's like, okay, I'll read. I haven't read in a while. I've been too sad to find anything for myself. So I'm just going to read what my friends tell me to. And it was called What Carries Us by Emily Jungman Yoon. Um, and it's, I like this. It stuck with me and I thought it was really interesting because it's a poem in my reading, at least, it's a poem about a long distance relationship, basically, in the modern age, and just like flying back and forth to see someone that you care about. But it's tying in with these, this idea of like, again, the natural world and like, what used to carry us places like horses and our own two feet and how we got around and what we cared about. And I guess I thought this was a, it stuck with me because I think I had this feeling of like, like my problems, like, sure, like they're my problems, but who cares? Like, <laughs> there's worse things. Okay, I miss my boyfriend, but whatever. <laughs> um, but this poem almost gave me a space to feel like something that's just co common nowadays can have a lot of emotion behind it. And it's okay to feel strongly about something, even if you feel like you're being a cliche. Um, and I, I just kept thinking about it because it just made me feel like I had space to process my own emotions in a kind of beautiful way and connect them to bigger things rather than trying to minimize myself and be like, no, nah, you're just, you're just a little girl. <laughs> it just gave me the space to be like, oh yeah, I can connect my experiences to literature or to history or to whatever I want. And if that's how I want to process, that's okay. And I can write a poem about something, even if I think it's silly and romantic or whatever and that was why it stuck with me and I've gone back to it a few times. <laughs> nice. Uh, well thanks for that, that question Chris. Uh, <laughs> that was a good one. Yeah we're, we're nearing an hour actually so uh, we'll kind of we'll wrap things up. Yeah so this was, oh go ahead. Before you uh, conclude are you going to edit this at all or will it just be one a continuous piece because I was wondering if we should go around and do introductions and kind of say who we are, what our backgrounds are, and if you were to stitch that to the beginning. But if there's no editing, I would understand. <laughs> oh yeah, that, that's a that's a good idea. Um, so yeah, I could uh, I could pull that from the end and put it at the beginning. So yeah, we'll 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 do, we'll do our introductions. And um, oh, the other thing I was going to say too is the um, as just kind of the as a bit of a reflection back on the the poems we selected. You know, these were some of many, a few of many. Oh, yeah. Really, the, the process here was nothing more than a subjective, you know, this is what struck me, what I liked, what I have an emotional response to. Um, so it was more to kind of celebrate these these couple of pieces and uh, and some of the, the creative spirits behind them that appeared in the, in the journal. Yeah, having said that, we'll, uh, we'll do some introductions. And uh, if you're listening to this, you'll be hearing this part at the beginning. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, this was great. Uh, thank you both for, for joining me um, on you. A, some, a little bit of short notice as I was uh, trying to organize this. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to participate and to talk with you guys, because this is really, really cool for me. Like, I, I feel so validated <laughs> as a young person entering the field to be included in this. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, no problem. Yeah, it was an idea I've had for a while just to get in more into the discussion. And yeah, it's, it's what, a, what a refreshing thing, right? I mean, we used to do this all the time <laughs> as teachers that. all the time. And, and it, you kind of lose a, uh, a lot of that element, obviously, with um, doing classes remote and stuff like that. 
So yeah, I'll, I'll talk to you again later. Sounds okay. great. Thank you. Thank you. This was so fun. <laughs>